Hello, and welcome to another episode of Obscurity Knox, an irregularly recorded podcast focused on a highly irregular topic, the most obscure things in actors' filmographies. I'm your host, Will Harris, and that's enough about me, because you're obviously more interested in hearing from our guest. He first made his mark in the 80s, originally thanks to such films as Risky Business, Better Off Dad, The Revenge of the Nerds franchise, and then transitioning to TV with a supporting role on Moonlighting. Since then, he's basically been in everything ever. Not really, but it seems like it sometimes, so it seems like the most succinct way of summing it up. Anyway, his name is Curtis Anderson, and he's a swell guy. I had been fortunate enough to speak to him in the past. A few years ago, I interviewed him about one of his favorite films for... Well, it was supposed to be for The Dissolve, and it ended up on my website, newsreviewsinterviews.com, but if you Google Curtis Armstrong and Malcolm McDowell, you'll find it. He gives a very passionate argument for why you absolutely should watch Oh Lucky Man. Uh, For now, though, please enjoy my conversation with Curtis Armstrong. Hey, Curtis, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I uh, appreciate you being willing to uh, indulge my completely ridiculous concept for oh yeah. listen i have to tell you something this is really i i, I mean i was I, I laughed out loud when i saw the list and <laughs> i'm assuming most people when you do this with them have a similar response yeah and they've uh, they usually have to actually sit down and, and think for <laughs> a few minutes if they even have an anecdote about some of them well, no, I mean, that's that's definitely the case. I mean, you know, some of these are so so obscure um, that I, I needed to do a little research myself um, just to remember, you know, you know, years and who I was working with and so on. Um, it's it's but it's it's sort of delightful in a way. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed, you know, looking back. Like I was saying, it's one of those things where uh, the, the premise was that people have never been asked about most of these things ever, so uh, it gives the opportunity to tell a story they may never have told before, or just that they haven't even thought about in you know, two decades or three decades or whatever. Right. Well, uh, of course, I put in the initial email about how you've got the uh, your three cards that you can use, your virtual cards. You oh, want. right. Oh. Uh, right, right, right. Remind me of that. Remind yes. me what that is. Absolutely. I forgot about that. That's right. It's three virtual cards in case any of these things are so horrifying that you don't want to discuss them at all. <laughs> so you've got the just say no card. You can just literally just say nope. And then uh, there's no follow-up question on my behalf. You just get a free pass. Uh, the one-liner card, uh, all you have to do is just give a, a single sentence as to why you don't particularly want to go into detail. And it could be as generic a sentence as... It was no fun, or it could be as tantalizing as you want because I'm not allowed to ask a follow-up. And then uh, okay. the last one is the switcher card, and that's uh, if you just have one that you can't think of an anecdote for, and you have the option to switch it out for a, uh, another obscurity or something of, of approximately equal obscurity level. Oh, okay. So I guess that's clear enough. Um and you don't have to use any of them, but I like to pull them um, out just to What I might do, yeah, I might, I mean, if I need to do any of those cards, I'll probably just, uh, rather than keep what their actual names are in my head, I'll just let you, I'll, I'll tell you, what, you know, that I can't, or, and you can tell me what card I'm playing, because <laughs> I don't know, but um, mostly I think I have at least some recollection of what we're talking about here. Okay. Well, I guess we'll go chronologically. Uh, the first one on here is uh, from 1991, uh, entitled "Hi, Honey, I'm Dead." "Hi, Honey, I'm Dead" was something that it was. My, it was my first, as I recall, the first movie I did uh, after Moonlighting had ended, and uh, there was a period uh, in that 89, 90 uh, area around there. Um, that was pretty rough, um, and I, I, I referenced it in the book. Um, one of the periods in my career where things just went into doldrums, um, and there was no work, and uh, I had come off of a very intense show, Moonlighting, and and um, I was wasn't handling it very well, and sort of. Uh, depressed and just a miserable time 
And I had done maybe one TV show, I think, Grant, All right. with Pamela Reed. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was just a rough time. And then this movie came up, which was called, at the time, was called Once More with Feeling. <laughs> and it was Affin Hicks and little Joey Gordon-Levitt as, uh, as our son. <laughs> and uh, Kevin Conroy, of course, as me before I died. And then me, you know... This is this is this is my this is my uh, punishment for being a good-looking asshole. Is I wind up, you know, coming back and as Curtis Armstrong. Oh sure. Um, so you know, it was it was um, I it was one of those things that um, the more it gets worked on, the less effective it becomes. Yeah. And um, I loved working with those people. Paul Rodriguez, of course. Um, uh, it was very well known as a stand-up at the time, but not as an actor. And uh, and uh, Alan Meyerson uh, directed it, and uh, I was to work with him later. But at the time, it was one of those things where I sort of jumped into it with with uh, both feet, and I was really wanting to make the best possible. Uh, the best possible um, movie that I could, and I was excited to be working with people. Jerry Harden was in it, who's one of my favorite character guys. People know him from uh, from X Files. Right. Uh, deep throat, and um, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, I was glad to be back at work, and it felt great to be back at work. But, um, but it, it became apparent to me that. Um, that the producer of the of the thing uh, was the person who was really in charge, and there'd been a lot of alterations in the script, and I wasn't clear that that the the writer was particularly happy with that, and uh, and uh, and I think what wound up happening was Alan Meyerson was sort of he had sort of clicked onto the fact that this was a sinking ship. <laughs> Um, long before I did, and was much more accepting of the fact that he just needed to get the thing shot and out um, <laughs> so we could all cash our checks and go home. And uh, and uh, so it wound up becoming very tense. And I sort of, if I'm known for anything other than promptness, um, it's uh, for being generally pretty easy to get along with on a movie set. And um, it was the first time that I found myself just out of sheer frustration being, uh, I guess, what people could call difficult. Um, I think that's certainly how the producer uh, uh, interpreted it. Um, and uh, so it wound up being kind of an unpleasant experience as much as I loved Catherine. And I did love Catherine, um, and uh, and and uh, uh, Joey was terrific, Joey. Um, and um, so it was it was it was fun, um, but uh, and Kevin Conroy and I still sort of share wry asides about it when we meet. <laughs> um, but it was certainly not what it was cracked up to be, and. Um, kind of sad ultimately it's funny Kevin Conroy uh, I, I know he has had a fair uh, uh, career as an on screen, on screen actor but I just know him predominantly as uh, uh, voice work the, the, boy, the, the voice Batman for exactly yeah Batman <laughs> yeah 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 I know well I mean he's one of those you know he and I are in the same boat pretty much I mean uh Although he was, you know, as a younger man, he was much more of a leading man than I. I mean, I never was a leading man. And in fact, the 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 uh, High Honey and Dead, um, as it became known, um, was I believe the only film in which I am the lead or you know co-lead yeah. in a movie. I mean, I I was never a leading man type, and. Um, so it was interesting from that standpoint, um, but you know, with me, um, it was never a, a matter of 
being, you know, a character actor with a leading man trying to get out. Yeah. You know, it was never that. Um, <laughs> I was never really meant to to carry a movie or or anything like that. I was always a always a supporting guy. But Kevin and I are, you know, same generation and you know, been around a long time, so we we cross paths occasionally. Yeah. Next one uh, from 1993, uh, Public Enemy Number Two, which I know is a, a predominantly a Dave Thomas special. I <laughs> I loved this. <laughs> I loved Public Enemy Number Two. I'll tell you, when I saw it on the list, of course I've always remembered it. Um, but but I you know I went and looked at on YouTube just to really just to refresh my memory and wound up watching practically the whole thing because it's so funny and it really is still I think an incredibly funny whatever you're right it's a special it's not really a movie it's it was just one of those things that you know people did for you know showtime or whatever you know at the time Um, Dave Thomas was you know obviously was part of uh, Second City TV SCTV, which was a show that I worshipped, <laughs> and I still do. And you know, I mean, it really was as close to classic inspirational comedy um, for me as you know Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers were. You know, I mean, it's it, there. My my. Taste always tends to go back to the early days of cinema, um, but occasionally something comes along. Um, and of course, I was around when Second City was running. Um, that uh, that that strikes that kind of a, a, a of an inspired chord, and SCTV did that for me, and I studied it. I mean, I really studied SCTV, and everybody who was on it, I thought, was fascinating, and I loved, there was something exotic about the fact that it was Canadian, and <laughs> all this stuff, and, and so then I get this job working with Dave Thomas, and I had actually worked previously with Joe Flaherty, um, which had been, he played my dad, um, we were practically the same age, but he played my dad in um, One Crazy Summer. And that was exciting for me because he, Joe was my first SCTV veteran, <laughs> um, and I was really thrilled to work with him, and now I was getting a chance to work with Dave, and then subsequently wound up working with Rick Moranis as well. So, it, And it was always exciting and always fun, and Dave was... I think it's still just a, I mean, it's in that SCTV sketch style of comedy. There's not a moment of reality in it, but it's, it is still incredibly funny. And, and I, I just, I, I remember it with such fondness because, because I felt like I was really working with a master here. And he was, I remember, if memory serves, he was going through a rough patch himself at the time, uh, and you know, uh, I just watch him watched him sublimate everything and focus on it. And I'll tell you, there's another thing about that show which amazed me was for the time how good the uh, the the effects camera work effects were with him playing both characters in the same frame. Uh, You know, now with Orphan Black and shows like that, we see, you know, the ultimate of that. But even for its day, I thought that was pretty effective. Um, But there was, to my recollection, no improvisation. Um, But Dave clearly had his hand in everything. And... um, and it was it was one of my favorite uh, experiences. I think I really. But again, that's what's so tremendous about this idea uh, that you started here. This 
this, uh, you know, the the delving into the really obscure stuff because when you've been around long enough, there are things which you do in a decade where you think, oh my God, that's like one of my favorite jobs. And then as the decade recedes into the distance, you begin to think, you forget. I mean, you, you know it was there, yeah. but other things replace it for good reasons or bad. And, and gradually it just becomes part of the whole and not really significant in and of itself. And when you, I would never think to go back and look at any of these things <laughs> on your list. Not, not because I don't, you know, I hate looking back or I think it's a bad idea. I just don't have time. Who has, who has time to do that? Sure. I, can, I don't have time to watch what I'm doing now. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the idea that you then pluck something like, like, uh, uh, like this out of nowhere, um, and Mike Connors. I was going to ask specifically about him because he was such an old school guy. Well, I mean, tremendous sense of humor and great. Uh, I, I I had met him before, actually. I met him when it's weird coincidence, though. But we, I'd met him when we were doing One Crazy Summer on Cape Cod, <laughs> and it was strange. It was like he was staying in the hotel. I mean, I don't know why he was there. He wasn't there to work, obviously, on our movie. Um, I, he didn't seem to be working at all. I, he seemed maybe he was on holiday or something. But that was the first time I'd met him. And for some reason, he knew me, which I thought was bizarre, because that's, you know, mid-'80s. Yeah. Why would Mike Connors have any idea who I was? But anyway, so meeting him on the set then for, for Public Enemy uh, number 2 was the second time I'd met him. And, um, you know, what was great about him was, you know, he's, he's doing this straight, you know, a role for which he would have been perfect if somebody had done a show like that, you know, uh, to get Mike Connors in the trench coat with the <laughs> with the cup of coffee, you know, talking so seriously about Wynn Dalton. I mean, it, it was just, it, it, it was kind of perfect, but he was also really aware of how ridiculous it was and why they picked him, and, you know, there was that airplane uh, quality to it, yeah. that idea of, you know, these guys who were so famous when we were growing up playing the hard-jawed, steely-eyed uh, detectives or whatever, you know, now sort of making slight fun of that. Um, yeah. But uh, but he was terrific. Let's see, uh, and Mary Gross, too. Oh, yeah, Mary absolutely. Gross was delightful. And... I just remembered uh, this was also the only time I ever worked with Clint Howard. Oh, wow, okay. I, I just found that interesting because it seems like uh, you and he would end up going out for the same roles every once in a while. Oh, we go out for the same roles constantly. <laughs> and that's that was the funny thing is that even then, um, you know, we're about the same height. We, you know, I, I have more hair than he does. But aside from that, you know, we were, we were, we still are up to the same role. <laughs> and what is more, um, I think that Clint actually has gotten better reviews for his work in Ray than I have. <laughs> um, because finally in, in Ray, I wound up shaving my head uh, to play the role of Ahmed Erdogan and put on a pair of glasses and everyone went, oh my God, it's Clint Howard. Um, so it's one of those things where we're mistaken for each other quite a lot. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, next one on here is uh, from 1997, uh, L.A. Johns. Okay. Um, I can tell you that I don't have a lot of memory of this. Okay. Wanna... I think, I, I seem to remember taking it because uh, I got to do a hot tub scene. <laughs> and I figured, you know, with a woman. Sure. And um, and I figured that that, that had to be worth something. <laughs> um, when you're an actor like me, hot tub scenes with beautiful young women don't come down the pike every day. And so maybe I thought 
that, you know, it was sort of a, a fun idea and I should take the opportunity while I have it. As it turns out, of course, I don't even think you can find the movie on YouTube. It's so obscure. I, and, um, I couldn't even find a clip so, of it. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, there are probably a couple of movies I've done that fall into that category, although it's amazing <laughs> when I realize how much of this really bizarre, you know, alternative weird cult stuff is actually available but this one seems to have slipped through the net and it's probably just as well for everyone i think um uh it was just one of those things you know i wasn't involved with it that long the only thing i can remember was Brittany was the first person i ever met who had a tongue piercing <laughs> she had one of those little you know metal knobs yeah you know, little buttons stuck in her tongue. And it was really, for me, it was just fascinating. I couldn't take my eye off it because, you know. And, but she had to pull it out every time we did a scene. And usually she would remember. But I remember when we were shooting our, our scene at the beautiful beach house. And she, um, they were rolling and she realized she still had this thing stuck in her tongue. <laughs> and she yanked it out and handed it to me. And so I wound up doing the scene with her tongue piercing in my hand, which was, which was distracting and intimate, but kind of weird, too. <laughs> I'll tell you, the reason that I put that on the list in particular was uh, I was curious if you'd had any interaction with Deborah Harry. Deborah Harry, yes. In fact, that was that was another part of it is realizing that Deborah Harry was playing the madam. Now, I I had no actual scenes with her yeah. on camera, but we did have a um, a conversation on the phone. But it was being shot, obviously, at different times. So you know, Debbie came in uh, on her day. She was doing her side, and I was doing my side. And I, uh, like a good actor. <laughs> And in honesty, I would probably have done it anyway, but I was especially not going to miss meeting Debbie Harry. So I uh, volunteered to come in on the day that Debbie came in so I could do the, uh, the uh, off-camera dialogue with her. And they were very thrilled that I was willing to do that. But, of course, what I really wanted to do was meet Debbie Harry. And so I wound up being able to speak, and she was great. And, and, you know, talking about New York in the 70s and all of that, which was, you know, the period when I moved there. And, uh, and she was funny and sort of, sort of bawdy. It was great. I mean, it was, a, it was one of those times where, you know, no matter what happens with whatever, you know, whatever the job is that shows up, you know, you get to meet people like that. And, you know, it's worth it. That seems to be the common thread with people I, I talk with, is that uh, no matter what the job was, no matter how it turned out, they always have the memory of something that happened that sticks with them fondly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't say that you learn with every job you get, um, because I don't think that's true. But you, you, or let's say you don't learn anything necessarily positive on every show you work on, but you do meet people uh frequently people you know for me people who i've admired people who came before me usually um yeah, well, that's becoming less and less the case the older i get um but you know it was just it was one of those things where you you do get excited you still get excited you know when you meet people yeah. like that i'm still a fanboy. <laughs> nothing wrong with that no. Nope. Uh, let's see. So next, uh, actually, I think this is the same year. Uh, Elvis meets Nixon. This was a tragedy. <laughs> that movie was a tragedy. I have to tell you. Um. Uh. I'm sorry. Um. The director. It is uh, Alan Arkish. Alan. <laughs> Alan Arkish. Yeah. 
speaking of Debbie Harry, by the way, exactly you know, that. I mean, you know, Alan, Alan was very involved in the punk uh, scene in the 70s. I knew Alan because he was one of the only directors on Moonlighting who both Bruce and Sybil uh, would work with <laughs> towards the end. Alan was the greatest. And by the way, other parenthetical, the only uh, director from Moonlighting who subsequently cast me in something else. <laughs> and that something else was, he actually did, we did Man and Machine together and we did, uh, and we did this one. Um, Nixon, Nixon was such a great idea. And when he sent me uh, the script, uh, the role was of one of Elvis's Memphis Mafia, which is just the weirdest casting on the planet. I, I, <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I think, well, you know, this, did Alan actually say, this just screams Curtis Armstrong? Um, but, uh, but I didn't care. I just thought, I read this script, and I still, I kept the script, because, and, every, you know, I, when I was writing my book, I would go back to, you know, piles of scripts and stuff that I had, had ferreted away over the years, and I was looking at the Elvis Meets Nixon script and realizing that it really was as brilliant as I remember it. <laughs> but the problem with it was that it had been written with a dream cast of real people <laughs> so when they were writing the the uh, script they said okay we're doing this as a documentary we're going to be interviewing different people to tell this story and we need to have really big people so that it wasn't it wasn't the idea of Dick Cabot narrating it was never considered <laughs> they were going to have Walter Cronkite do it wow. And they weren't going to interview Graham Nash. They were going to interview George Harrison and Ringo Starr. And they had all of these huge plans about all, and believe me, I mean, they're all in the script. So they'd written all of this stuff, great, funny, you know, uh, uh, sort of self-deprecating Jokes, and then for Nixon, they wanted G. Gordon Liddy, and yeah, I mean, they went they went completely overboard writing this fabulous thing for all of the you know, they had all of the Watergate guys in it who were still alive, and you know, and uh, so first thing that happens is Walter Cronkite, not surprisingly, passes because he was still doing, you know, special, I mean, that was his excuse, uh, was that he, he was still doing special, you know, uh, uh, news things for CBS or whatever it was he was doing, and this was entertainment, and he never, so who do we get? And they couldn't find anyone else who would do it, and so then they wind up going with Dick Cabot, which automatically puts it into a totally different sphere, and then, you know, gradually everybody started dropping out. And all of the Watergate people said, you have to be crazy. Why would I ever do such a thing? <laughs> and then Ringo, I think, dropped because he, uh, this is, of course, what people, the reasons that people give for this stuff. It's not necessarily true, but it's the reason they give. Um, that Ringo was um, had just done Bruce Willis's show, oh, yeah. uh, which was the the fantasy, the rock and roll fantasy Bruce did called The Return of Bruno, right. and and Ringo was in that, and Ringo so Ringo was saying, well, you know, I don't want to do too many of these, you know, <laughs> so Ringo was out, and then you know i don't remember what happened with george i don't remember but you know they're going through all of these people and everybody's got a reason to not do it and it was it was so sad because it really was genuinely a really funny script if you could have had those people it would have been great and you wind up basically not getting any of them so you you know they wound up going with with graham nash which you know 
nothing against Graham Nash, but you, you can't even begin to make a connection between Graham Nash and Elvis Presley. I mean, I'm not to say there isn't somewhere, but right. it just didn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, gradually this was something which just started out with enormous promise and wound up sort of not making any real comedic sense at all. Um, and you had to make such stretches. I mean, if you had a Beatle talking about Elvis, you know, you had that moment that afternoon where the Beatles met Presley and his... And that was what they talk about. That's what, the, you know, they they do jokes on that, you know, famous story of the Beatles, you know, going and paying homage to the king. And, you know, you can do that. Harder to do with uh, with Graham Nash. Um, so, you know, it essentially just, it, it, you know, they did what they could with it. We shot it in Toronto. Um, and the reason, aside from tax breaks, we shot it in Toronto was because there was an Elvis freak who lived in right outside of town in Canada there um, who had recreated um, Graceland. In his, I mean, that was his house, but he had recreated it outside and in. There was a jungle room, the whole deal. And so um, they moved up to shoot uh, all of this stuff in Toronto because they had a they had a set they were able to um, to get for for very little that was absolutely accurate in every way. <laughs> yeah. At least there was later a, another uh, Elvis meets Nixon film, but I know, I know, I, it makes me sad. Yeah. I, you know, I. It, it 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 just it it does because it's you know I haven't seen it in a long time I, you know, I don't know how well it works but it just I, it it makes me sad that we we couldn't have gotten a little more a uh, little more attention. Let's see. Next is uh, from 1998, Border to Border. Yeah, uh, you know this is one I remember. I, I know it's a monologue in a restaurant, but that's really all I remember. You can use that. Uh, I, I remember nothing. So you can use that as your one-liner. Sorry. You, uh, you can use that as the one-liner if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, th I'll I'll give you this. Okay. That every once in a while, over the years, somebody has sent me a, a, a scene like that. And it's, you know, terrific. And it was a really good monologue. And I have no idea what the movie's about, but I like the monologue. And if I'm not working, I'll do it. Yeah. Just for the monologue. So that's what I did with Border to Border. <laughs> Let's see. Next one, I, I guess it's not that obscure among TV critics, but I had to ask about it. Uh, from also 1998, The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer. <laughs> okay, well... Okay, I can talk about this one, because this was really kind of an amazing experience. Um, you know, it's in Hollywood, Secret Life of Desmond Pfeiffer, although I believe it was pronounced Pfeiffer, which was right, yes, part sir. of the joke. Um, but uh, this, this is one of those things that became sort of um, code um, you know, like Heaven's Gate or something, you know, um, for, for what happens when you, when you embark on something that becomes a total disaster for no particular reason. Um, I auditioned, actually, for Secret Life of Desmond Pfeiffer. Uh, uh, I'd actually auditioned for one of the regular roles of it, um, for the role that they, they cast... Kenny, uh, Ken, uh, uh, I started to say Ken Baker, and that's not right. It's actually, um, Max, Max Baker. Okay, um, the English actor. And, uh, they, they cast him in the role, and I just went, okay, well, whatever. I knew nothing about it other than whatever the role was I was reading. And then, um, I started hearing about it. And for those who don't know, 
it became an enormous uh, scandal, a, a, a cause celeb, really, in Hollywood, because the idea of it was Chai McBride, who I knew, because Chai had his first movie role, I believe, in Revenge of the Nerds 3. Oh. He was one of the new generation of nerds. <laughs> And he did the fourth movie as well. So I knew him and was thrilled for him that he'd gotten this great role, you know, starring in his own TV series. And um, so I'd been turned down for the role, so uh, Niblet the role was. Niblet, I ask you. And (laughs) (laughs) so I didn't think anything of it. And then... And then they contacted me again, and they said, um, you know, uh, we turned you down, but would you come back and do this part, playing a Confederate general or something? I mean, a Confederate uh, guy. Again, you know, memory of what the story was is is pretty much lost in the fogs of my brain. But um, but they, they, they said, would you come back for that? And I, once again, I said, why not? So I came back, and, you know, because I knew Shy and, and because I'd already auditioned for these people before, it was, it was something rather, you know, fun and comfortable about it. But it was, what, what I had discovered was that it had become notorious because of something that was, to my recollection, never even shot. But apparently in the pilot episode of this, which is, Chai as a, uh, an, an, uh, an English uh, nobleman, black English nobleman, winds up fleeing England because of something, debts or something. And he comes back to, uh, to he comes to the colonies and winds up being Abraham Lincoln's valet. And of course, the way that it's shown in the in the series is everyone around him is an idiot including lincoln and mary todd and um he's the only one with any brains at all that was the idea behind it but in the pilot script there is described a series of visual images including a uh lynched black man now, what possesses people to even think that this would be an image that would be appropriate? Who knows? But for whatever reason, it was put into the pilot script. And although it was removed, and it was certainly never shown, someone leaked it. And that was how the whole thing started. Then it comes to me coming back to the show after they've already been filming, and I got there and there was a it was down at at uh, down at Paramount, and I as I'm driving along Melrose, I see this crowd outside at the corner of Gower and Melrose, and it's it's a protest. Uh, people are protesting the secret life of Desmond Pfeiffer. So I you know got in, and by the end of the week. Jesse Jackson was outside. I mean, it became a huge deal that this was, you know, inappropriate and insulting and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it wound up being a disaster. I think they wound up showing maybe two episodes of it before they pulled it. And then, uh, and then it, I think they shot six or seven out of nine and then canceled it. Um, but, you know, <laughs> When I was there, certainly Chai was a little wry about the whole thing because here he was finally, um, you know, having made it, and and he's a complete lightning rod for everything that's happening around him. And he's such a nice guy. I, I met him when he was doing uh, Human Target, and he's good on yeah. greater. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, he went on to have a great career, oh, yeah. and and still is. And he's, you know, he's he's done a lot of great stuff, um, and and also, by the way, you know, from what I've seen of it, and I just I you know went back to YouTube again when I knew we were talking about it. You know, it actually is funny, and and now that I remember it, now that I'm talking about it, my 
my episode, I believe, I'm, I believe I reveal myself as Sherman Helmsley in it. Um, <laughs> that it turns out Sherman and I were playing the same character, or I was disguised, I don't know. I mean, it's bizarre, and maybe I'm wrong, but I know I worked with Sherman Helmsley on that, and I seem to remember we were playing the same role. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I would have to, I'd have to do more investigation to find that out. <laughs> I'll see what I can find. <laughs> uh, so next would be uh, from 2002, Gale Force. Gale Force, okay. Uh, now, wait a minute. Gale Force can't be chronological because that's the second Jim Lenowski movie I did. The first one was Project Viper. Okay, sorry, I flipped But maybe yeah. Project Viper might not have been released until after. Um, because Viper, well, let me take it that way because the, the two of them belong together because yeah, they're both they're, Jim they're Lenowski. They're back to back on here, too. So. <laughs> right, yeah. But we actually shot uh, Viper first. Okay. And then it, I, I think it was one of those things where it disappeared for a while and then reemerged um, with Project Viper. And, um, and by that time, we were already working on Gale Force. So starting with Project Viper, um, Jim Wynowski is one of the great um, sort of filmmaker uh, legends um, for independent, low-budget film guys. If you, I don't know if if there's an IMDB of everything he's done, because he's done so much, and so much of it for no money, basically. Um, I understood that he always worked in two ways. He, he had a, a name that he directed porn under, and, and, and that, I can't remember what the name was, but, but that was sort of how he was mainly known. Is like he would do, you know, these amazing, you know, six or seven porn shots in a week. I mean, movies in a week. And I mean, he was legendary for it. And uh, and then he would direct sort of low budget horror science fiction movies as Jim Wynoski. So uh, I may be mixing that up, but I think think that's how it went. Anyway, he was. Sort of, I think someone actually did do a documentary about him, uh, which I never saw. But you couldn't not. The guy was such a classic example of of the type of guy who would be shooting porn all the time and no budget horror movies. I mean, on one hand, I I I, I didn't see any of his porn, but. What would happen with with Jim would be we would get on the set and start talking about Forrest Ackerman <laughs> and famous monsters of Filmland <laughs> and all of the you know the legendary horror science because I'm a complete nerd in that category <laughs> and so is he you know we were about the same age raised on the same with the same horror hosts you know on TV and all that sort of thing so. We had an enormous amount in common, but he was very unpredictable. And what I remember from uh, from Viper, uh, which starred Teresa Russell, who was wonderful, and I adored her, and Tim Thomerson, who I also loved. And, uh, and so I was shooting this scene in Viper where I was on a stage in a theater, like a, an old cinema, this run-down little cinema out in the valley somewhere. And I was pitching a retirement, some kind of pyramid scheme thing. I, I forget what it was exactly, but to to a crowd of, of senior citizens. I was trying to lure these people in to something which was clearly not legal or moral or anything. <laughs> And so I was just a sleazy guy. I was playing one of the Curtis Armstrong sleazy guy roles, you know. <laughs> and um, and uh, and then at the end of it, Tim Thomerson comes in and he sort of hustles me out to his uh, his deputy. He's the sheriff, and he hands me over to his deputy and said, "Run this guy out on 
you know, put him out on the on the uh, highway, and I never want to see your face. Blah blah blah. His, you know, very. It was very 1950s. The whole thing felt like a 1950s science fiction movie. And so I wind up driving out of town, and then my car breaks down, and I look under the hood, and Viper, this thing that's part animal, part computer chip or something, I have no idea what the movie was about, um, is curled up around my engine block, and then it leaps down my throat and blows me up. And it was one of the more spectacular exits um, that I had um, in movies. Um, and so that was how it ended. I, there was other stuff that I did that I can't remember for the life of me what it was. But what was significant about this scene in the movie theater was it was the first day, and Jim is in the back, and he comes up to me and has a long you know, presentation that I'm giving to these people, a lot of dialogue. And he says, um, we're starting with just a, establishing here, so don't worry too much about the lines, just, you know, uh, keep going and, you know, we'll get that and then we'll, we'll come in and start covering you. I went, great. So first, first foot of film I'm shooting on Project Viper. So I start in with my monologue and I'm in a, a, into it and then I, I sort of box it up a little bit. I mean, I invert sentence, you know, two sentences or something. But I keep going because we're shooting establishing shots here. Yeah. And suddenly from the back of the theater comes this scream from Jim Wernowski saying, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and I just froze. And all these extras who were sitting in the seats spun around staring at Winowski, standing in the back of the theater. Here he comes down, yelling, what the fuck was I doing? And none of it made any sense. And, you know, and I genuinely thought he was kidding because I had never, I couldn't imagine anybody getting so bent out of shape about this. And then finally he stopped and I said, are you serious? I said, he, I, I, I don't mind not rehearsing, but you're starting at the back of the theater. You, you couldn't be further out of the theater without being out of the theater. When it, you know, when I, I inverted a couple of sentences. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Are you, you think I'm made of money or something? I don't have all day and blah, blah, blah. It was unbelievable. And so, you know, he, he's like, oh, fine, let's come in for... I mean, this is classic, sort of, you know, what you imagine from, from, you know, these guys from the 1950s who were making movies like Ed Wood or, you know, one of those people <laughs> who, you know, just are not entirely, you know, possibly stable um, and, and going off the deep end that way. It was very bizarre. The strange thing was we finished the coverage of it. And um, I, at that point, I was thinking he might actually be dangerous. <laughs> and I finished the, uh, the, the scene, and he was absolutely charming. After that, there was never a problem. It's like he needed to get that out of his, you know, system, and now we were, we were buds. <laughs> and uh, we, we, I finished shooting the movie. I was there for, I don't know, three days or something on it. But it, it probably only shot for about... Seven. I mean, it was one of those, yeah. and um, and I thought that was the end of it because I couldn't imagine him ever wanting to work with me again. <laughs> and then I get an offer to do Gale Force, which was a couple of steps up in budget, and he had uh, Treat Williams, who I knew from our party days uh, during. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, Treat was on, was staying in the same hotel as the Nerds. He was working on a movie there called, uh, I can't remember, him and Chris Christopherson. Anyway, so I, I knew him socially, but I'd never worked with him before. But it was it was Treat and Michael Dudikoff uh, 
of American Ninja fame. Yeah. And uh, so he had actual names on this. And uh, and there, I was getting along with him fine at that point. And then I did wind up away from the set one night hearing that he actually come to blows with uh, Treat over something. He had pushed Treat beyond uh, where he could stand it. And the two of them were standing there screaming at each other with a helicopter overhead. And no one could hear what they were saying. But... I mean, it was, this was the kind of thing, and ultimately, he did ask him to do a third movie um, that he was shooting in Hawaii, and he assured me that there would be lots of women in bathing suits and all that, and I just went, I, I, don't, I don't think I can. I can. I, I, I've done my time with Jim, so I, I regretfully passed, and um, I subsequently heard he sort of resented that, but I, that may be wrong. Let's see, uh, the next we got uh, one that actually, I own this one, uh, from 2003, My Dinner with Jimmy. Oh, this was a nice little movie. Um, I, I really liked this movie. It was, um, it was the Turtles uh, story, yeah. uh, the, the rock group, the Turtles. And, uh, and I had been approached to do this, I think it was... One of those things where it came out of of Ray, uh, the, the the movie Ray, uh, where I played somebody in the music business, Ahmed uh, Erdogan, and then uh, and then I wound up getting another one where I was playing a different person in the music business um, in a movie called Sparkle, and then and then this one, um, Roger is it Roger Cohen? I think his name was Roger Cohen was uh, the uh, manager of Frank Zappa, and also, uh, I believe, of Jimi Hendrix at one point. But he was one of those L.A. characters who sort of um, uh, were very thick on the ground in those days, and um, and pretty pretty famous guy. And um, and so I guess they asked me to do it because of the connection um, to. To uh, to Ray, um, but it was really a charming, lovely little indie movie um, about a period that that interested me, and um, it's you know basically the the turtles going to England at the height of their fame, and meeting the Beatles and meeting Graham Nash. Who re-enters our story at this point? I, I can't remember whether Graham is actually in the movie or not, but that would make me maybe the only person in the world who's been in two movies with Graham Nash. Um, so, so, um, so, but that was what it, that was essentially what it was, and they, you know, they had no budget, and they couldn't afford music rights, which was really funny. I mean, they could afford, I guess, they could afford the Turtles' music, but you know, they. They uh, they couldn't have, like there was a scene in the whiskey with Jim Morrison and and you know doing a, a concert with the Doors and they couldn't they couldn't use any Doors music so they had to use sort of music that they had somebody whip up on a on a on a Moog synthesizer or something so it was you know it was working under those kinds of strictures but at the same time something comes out that's really rather heartfelt and really sweet and uh and i i i they sent me a copy of it i sort of plugged it in not expecting much and wound up being completely charmed by it um all of which has nothing to do with me <laughs> i i i don't think that i had much of a uh, a role in it and i don't think that i was terribly impressed with my work but that's not unusual uh, but uh, but it was really it was really nice. It was a nice little nice little movie. Uh, let's see. Then our home stretch here. But, uh, this is a slightly different one. Uh, 2006, The God of Hell. Okay, God of Hell was a play. Yeah. Um, and it was an interesting sort of disaster as it turns out um uh this was a play that had been written by sam shepherd the great 
Sam Shepard, um, that was written very quickly and sort of read like it. Um, it wasn't another buried child, definitely. Um, it was a reaction that he had, uh, this is during Bush too, um, with the, the, uh, the, the, the institution of the Patriot Act. Um, he felt was, you know, a gigantic Republican overreach, which a lot of people felt. Um, but he was so moved that he wrote this very strange play about uh, about this uh, farmer and his wife in Wisconsin or something, and a guy shows up who's on the lamb and strange, and that's me. And then another guy shows up, and it's somebody who appears to be connected to the government looking for the other guy. And it's four people in this play. Uh, and the government guy winds up torturing my character um, pretty much in front of everybody. Um, Brian Cranston was, was the guy who played that. And... Uh, and basically, it, it was a tough play, but it was made more difficult than it needed to because of Sam Shepard. Because what happened was, this was being directed uh, by Jason Alexander. Um, he was, I think, the first play, straight play he directed in, in L.A. at that point. He directs a lot now. But it was at the, the Geffen Theater, which is a very, very good theater here. And um, as we were working on it, the four of us, um, we discovered that it really didn't hold water almost at all. It was very confusing. Motivations were just not there. None of us could figure out why we were doing or saying anything. And it was, it was really, uh, we were having, we were struggling. Yeah. And uh, Jason, one day, I can remember him just looking at the script and saying, "This we can't work this way. I have to talk to Shepard. We have to see if we can get Shepard to come in, and you know, we could talk with him. We could, you know, show him some of the things. Blah blah blah. Thinking like a director in a theater. Well, it turns out that Shepard won't come in, and so Jason said, "Well, what about I call him? I'll call him, and." Um, I can just, you know, uh, talk to him myself, and maybe we can get some answers to the things that are bothering the actors, and no, his representation said, no, he's not going to talk to you. <laughs> and Jason is just flummoxed, because this play had been done once, right before the second Bush election, and it had been done in New York at a little theater, and, and you know, and Sam Shepard had talked about it quite a lot in public, saying that he had belief that this play was going to change people's minds about voting for Bush again, and it was an important statement, and blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, it didn't change anyone's, enough people's minds, and, and Bush got reelected. And so then Geffen picks it up. The Geffen Theater picks it up. And we find ourselves in this position when suddenly Sam Shepard doesn't want to talk about the play anymore. And so Jason, out of frustration, finally said to his representative, look, I, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll make a list of questions. I'll send them to him. I'll fax them. Give me your fax number. I'll fax the questions. He can write down the answers whenever he feels like it, but we're getting to the point where we need to, you know, and no, he won't talk about it. So then finally, we're struggling through as best we can. And we get to Tech Week. So it's like Sunday. And we're opening the following Thursday. And uh, in the New York, I'm sorry, in the LA Times is an article about Sam Shepard, who has some other project that he clearly cares about more than this one. Um, and they're doing an interview with him. And in the course of the interview, the guy from the L.A. Times says, by the way, you know, you've got this new production opening, you know, at the Geffen out of hell. And Shepard said, oh, that's, that's not my production. That's, you know, I'm, I'm not really involved with it. And so they follow up on that with another question. He says, well, the truth is, 
He said, I was angry when I wrote it, but, you know, the truth is that I, I think I may have been too hard on the Republicans. Uh, I think uh, the Democrats would have done the same thing. So I just, you know, it, it just buries it. <laughs> buries it within four days of us opening. So suddenly the premiere, which, you know, we were expecting all these Hollywood people to be there. Barbara Streisand showed up, but no one else did. And... <laughs> and we we do this play the first night, and the audience hated it. But I mean, not hated it like it was a bad play. They viscerally hated it. the The scene where Brian Cranston starts to torture me, people were yelling and standing up and walking out, rows of people. We would lose rows of people in the last scene in that movie, in that play. Whole rows would stand up and leave. The people who stayed uh, would, during curtain call, not only not applaud, they would scream at us things like, um, Taliban. I, I, for some reason, they thought that this meant we were Taliban supporters or something. Or, you know, go, you don't like it here. It was like we'd opened in Missouri. You know, it was Westwood, California, you know, where you figure, you know, there's probably a fair amount of liberal sentiment. No. <laughs> People hated it. One night, somebody in, like, in the second row threw up all over everyone. They were so offended by this. Um, Lord. And then my favorite one was one that Jason told me afterwards, which was he, he was a he was a mensch. Jason Alexander was a mensch, man. He went through this with us. He didn't. He was holding our hand through the whole thing. And even after we opened, when by all rights he could have just left uh, and never come back um, because there was no reason for him to be there, he would still show up night after night, and stand at the back and watch us and be there to support us. And <laughs> the audience was walking out. And one night he was standing at the back, and there's this old woman. She's probably in her you know, late 80s, and she's got, a, she's got a walker, and she's down by the front for some reason, maybe to hear it properly. She, as this you know, torture scene starts up, she stands up, and she grabs her walker, and she starts heading, clumping up the steps, uh, up the aisle to the back of the theater where Jason is standing. And he said, I was watching her, and I saw her come up, and she's sort of talking to herself, and clearly angry or upset. And she gets to the top, right where Jason is, and she sees him, instantly recognizes him, throws down her walker and hits him in the chest with both hands, shoves him back, showing surprising strength for a woman of her age, <laughs> pushing him back and saying, you should have stuck with Seinfeld! And then grabbed her walker and left the theater. This is the kind of stuff that we were facing on a nightly basis. The reviews were terrible. Um, it was... Um, it was kind of a mess. But certainly memorable, it sounds like. Oh, totally memorable. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> and of course, the strange thing, parenthetically, strange thing about that was that it was during the course of that rehearsal period um, that uh, Brian Cranston and uh, Brian Cranston um, auditioned for um, uh, Walter White. Oh, right. Huh. For, uh, what do you call it? Oh, Breaking Bad, yeah, sure. Breaking Bad, yeah. yeah. And what is even funnier is, I did too. <laughs> which we, I didn't put together until later. Um, but, uh, but I had actually auditioned for it as well, but I can't imagine what Breaking Bad would have been like with me in it. I think they definitely made the right choice with Brian. <laughs>
You know, I got two more on my list here, but I can't imagine I'm going to get a better ending than that. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that that's just spectacular. I'm, <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm sorry thank for you, you about uh, <laughs> the God of Hell, but I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no, no, maybe it's you know it's something that never you know I have no reason to ever talk about it because you know these plays come and go and. In this case, the only people who will remember it are the five of us, really. <laughs> and probably that old woman. <laughs> yes. Possibly she remembers her worst night in the theater. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Curtis, for being willing to do this. And uh, make sure to give your book a plug, uh, Revenge of the Nerd, in stores now. It has been. But, uh yes. It's fantastic. Yes. It's in stores and also Amazon and, you know, all the rest of them. It's a, definitely a great read, and I think we'll teach people even more about you than uh, this podcast. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I, I, I enjoyed this. I really did. I mean, I have to tell you, it's all, um, you know, it, it, it was sort of delightful to look back on all this stuff because God knows I would never think about it normally. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Obscurity Knox, and now you're not. Look for us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just remember on Twitter, Knox is spelled K-N-O-X, and we're not bitter about that. No, really, we're not. Also, for a slightly more detailed look into the projects covered by this week's guest, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. Thanks for checking us out, and don't be afraid to check us out again. If you keep listening, we'll keep digging for more obscurities. See you next time.